0: Today's episode is brought to you by leading book publisher, the MIT Press. This season, the MIT Press is publishing Susanna Herculana Huzel's book, The Human Advantage, A New Understanding of How Our Brain Became Remarkable. It's a fascinating story about what makes human brains awesome, how he left our cousins, the great apes, behind, and what neurons, calories, and cooking have to do with it all. Read more about the human advantage and a few other science philosophy language and technology titles at mitpress.com/smart. That's mitpress.com/smart. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode seventy three. Okay, time for a thought experiment. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are going through resumes. You're looking at job applicants and you realize you've misplaced one. Hmm. You think, where does this go? There are exactly 100 applicants for this job. 70 of them are lawyers and 30 are engineers. And you just need to figure out which stack, the lawyer stack or the engineer stack, this resume needs to go back to. But for some reason, the only thing that is legible on the paperwork is the person's personality profile, which says she's a bit of a loner, doesn't have very many friends, didn't have very many friends in college. She owns three cats, she makes her bed every morning after waking up, and is extremely devoted to order in all things. So here's the question, based on the information at hand, is it more likely that the applicant is a lawyer or an engineer? Now, that's a thought experiment, yes, but it's actually a paraphrasing of a question that psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky came up with in the early 1970s when they were uncovering the truth behind how people actually reason. One of many similar questions that explored how people deal with probabilities in the real world. Their work eventually erased many long held ideas in economics, beliefs that once asserted that people were more or less predictable and rational. In their pursuit to maximize gains. Now, in their experiments, when they asked this question, a question similar to this one, most people guessed, based on the description, that the person was an engineer. Even though, if you recall, there were 70 lawyers and 30 engineers. Statistically, it's 70% versus 30 percent so it's much more likely that she's a lawyer and if you flip the descriptions so that the applicant has some personality qualities more associated with lawyers the guesses will flip as well but here's the crazy part if you provide no description at all they found that people tend to guess correctly they go back to the percentages and use those since there's no other confounding information available in other words the additional information in this scenario actually causes people to make poorer guesses than if they had no information at all, well, aside from those statistics. In other words, Kahneman and Tversky found that if you give us a way to not do the math, we will definitely take it. Give us anything else to go on, something social especially, and we will change our probabilities to match what they called representativeness. In this experiment, the better the person's description represented the dominant, current, prevailing cultural stereotype, well, the more the subjects completely ignored the numbers. Kahneman's book about his lifetime of work is called Thinking Fast and Slow, and this is a great example of that tug-of-war in our heads, using The stereotype is quick and easy and instantaneous and effortless, and that's fast thinking, or as it's called in psychology, heuristical thinking. So, there are many, many, many heuristics now that we've discovered and quantified and written out and put into charts and and replicated and so on. This one, though, in particular, is called the representativeness heuristic. And we use it because the other option would be to go back to the numbers, to take your time, to do a little math that's effortful and tedious, and most importantly, slow. Which is why, when we have the option, we tend to avoid that kind of problem solving.
1: There's a ton of, absolutely a ton of work on exactly this question, on deviations from ideally rational thinking regarding probability.
0: That is philosopher Neil A. Manson.
1: Uh, my name is uh, Neil A. Manson.
0: And he is a professor at the University of Mississippi.
1: Yeah, you just read the examples and you think, gosh, uh, how can people make such stupid, stupid mistakes? It seems so obvious now, except that uh, when, when the same sorts of experiments, the same sorts of psychological experiments, right, uh, that Kahneman and Tversky uh, write about were, were tried on psychologists when they didn't know they were being tested, okay, they made the same mistakes.
0: And not only psychologists, but also doctors and politicians and other professionals whose decision-making, whose judgment is really crucial for the well-being of everybody. So I asked Neil, why is it that we tend to go with this fast way of thinking when it's so often biased and wrong and inaccurate, and this slower way
1: seems better. I think probably the best explanation for that is that these reasoning capacities, as, as Kahneman and Tversky speculate, right, they're evolved. And so uh, I, what, what works mathematically and on paper is maybe very different from what mostly or kind of works when you've got to make a split second decision. That's the slow thinking versus the fast thinking. And we are hardwired to uh, resort to the fast thinking, uh, especially when the pressure's on.
0: And as Neil points out, the current speculation is that the pressure was probably always on, or at least on most of the time. During the period of time, our brains were being shaped by natural selection. All those millennia making quick decisions and making short-term plans paid off more often than taking time to meticulously ponder probabilities and to make long-term plans deep into the future, years into the future. And the result is a highly evolved cognitive engine that produces emotions that quickly guide our intuitions and actions, even though we also have access to a more reflective system. We have at our disposal all this gray matter capable of doing advanced calculus and dividing fractions—that is, you know, if we felt like
1: it—and so uh, I think that explains why why people think in this mistaken way. Right? It's just we've got a lot of pressure on us, and we don't really have the luxury—not uh, just the you know—not just the ordinary people, but even uh, even psychologists, even professionals—you know—they uh, don't have the time to think it out properly.
0: Okay, so that's a crash course in what is known as dual process theory. The idea that the brain uses two complex, highly evolved systems to make sense of the world. System one, which is fast, but also sloppy and biased. But it's good enough for situations that match those our ancestors likely faced more often than not. And system two, which is slow and also lazy. But it's the best system for doing things like, you know going to the moon, and curing polio, and doing math. The mixture of those two systems is the true duality of man, of our inner selves. And that's great stuff. But why are we talking about all this with philosopher Neil A. Manson? Well, it's because when you use System 1, when you think fast, you also tend to ignore something known as Bayes' Rule. In a way, Thinking slow is thinking, as they say in some circles, like a Bayesian. Which means, well, that's what this whole episode's about. I'm going to explain to you what Bayesian reasoning is. And I wanted to talk to Neil because I think the best guide to learning what Bayesian reasoning is and how it works was written a while back by a blogger named Luke Muehlhauser. And I have a link to it in the show notes, and you can read the whole thing. It's very long. It will take you days to read. But in that guide, Muehlhauser introduces Bayesian reasoning by mentioning a thought experiment created by Neil Manson. And it's such a good way to learn about Bayes' theorem, I thought we should hear Neil himself explain it. And that's what he's going to do right after this commercial break. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And when we get back, Bayes' theorem, Bayes' rule, Bayesian thinking how to approach the world in a Bayesian way after this break. already know that I love The Great Courses because they offer a huge library of professionally produced lecture series on topics ranging from art to philosophy to neuroscience to psychology to sociology to just about anything, all taught by top professors. But now, The Great Courses has something new, The Great Courses Plus. You can now get unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series that allows you to watch all of them or just make playlists of the ones you like and instead of buying one at a time you get them all with the great courses plus watch as many different lectures as you want anytime anywhere streaming from any internet connected TV, PC or through the great courses plus apps and right now they're giving all of my listeners a great offer you can watch their popular course behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide and hundreds of other courses absolutely free. Behavioral economics is taught by Professor Scott Hutel. It's a fascinating look at our decision-making process, what drives the choices we make consciously and even unconsciously. And now The Great Courses Plus is offering you a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including behavioral economics, a $235 value, by the way, when you use my special URL. And here's where you need to go. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Smart That's the Greatcoururses smart And now we return
1: to our program. This is the You
0: Are Not So Smart podcast, and this episode is sort of a prep course for the topics we will cover in our continuing series on logical fallacies. This show is kind of like an extra, a special feature before you hear those shows, which will feature three new experts on thinking, reasoning, decision-making, logic, arguing, and rationality. So in those shows, you will hear several people mention something we have never talked about on this show before, at least not specifically, though in a way we here at You Are Not So Smart are always talking about it. It's a it's a term, though, that we haven't actually ever really brought up or defined, and it's called Bayes' Theorem, a mathematical formula and... Really, a way of thinking, a thinking tool, a philosophical lens by which to see the world. And since it comes up several times in the next few episodes, I thought it would be a great idea if we did an episode just about that one thing to make sure we are all well versed in its particulars. So, Thomas Bayes was an English statistician born in 1701, died in 1761. And one of his theorems has become almost a way of life for people in certain communities. Now, although he may have put that down on paper many, many years ago, he was rediscovered sort of, you know, in the 1950s. And then that spread around certain communities that do lots of math. But once the Internet got hold of it, once the Internet got wind of Bayes' rule, it quickly went viral among the sort of people who talk in terms of logical fallacies and cognitive biases. And though you may have never heard of it, you have used it. Here's philosopher
1: Neil Manson explain. I want you to imagine you're in the army uh, and you're in combat, you're at war. And I also want you to imagine that uh, you've got an amazing new piece of equipment, namely a new helmet that is impervious uh, to all rifle fire.
0: Okay, you're a soldier, you're on a battlefield, maybe you're in a trench and you have this new helmet that is impervious to being hit in the head by bullets but you can tell if you do get shot in the head it just won't it just won't kill you
1: uh, And I also want you to suppose that uh, you know something some very particular things about the soldiers in the enemy army. Maybe you are in a briefing
0: or something but you have some data you have some facts that you know about the other side
1: uh, you know that 99% of them are... Regular soldiers, soldiers who've just gotten regular training.
0: So the vast majority of the people you're going to face are people like you. They've gotten basic training and they're okay with a gun, not experts.
1: And of those soldiers, only 20 percent of the time are they capable of firing a rifle from uh, 400 yards. That's a pretty long distance, and hitting a target in the head.
0: So don't don't stop here. Don't get lost. Don't worry about that 400 yards thing, just ignore that. Just remember that most of the soldiers cannot snipe. Of all the soldiers out there, 99% of them are regular soldiers. And of that 99%, 20% of them can shoot you from a long way away.
1: But there's another group within the enemy army, the sharpshooters, the elites. And they're 1% of the force, but they're really good at shooting from long distances. 90% of the time when they aim at a target 400 yards away, uh, they can hit it in the head.
0: So that's what we know going into the situation. 99% of the soldiers have the ability to shoot you in the head 20% of the time, while 1% of the soldiers have the ability to shoot you in the head 90% of the time at a distance.
1: Well, so uh, I want you to imagine you're out in the field— and uh, you look over the horizon and you spot uh, a sole, a lone enemy soldier at 400 yards.
0: Okay, so this is where we get into the Bayesian stuff, all right? So you see this one soldier out there in the distance and you think to yourself, hmm, what are the chances that that's a sniper? Well, I'm not going to take those chances right now because I'm going to jump into a trench or a foxhole or something. But while I'm sitting in there, I'm going to think, okay, maybe that maybe that person saw me. So. What are the chances that that was a sniper? Well, actually, I know the odds. And this is not something that will normally be true. You normally will have to go with sort of very rough estimates. But here you actually know that it's 99% chance that it's a, a regular soldier and it's a 1% chance that it's a sniper. So then you you peek your head just above the edge of that hole to see if that person saw you. And pa-ting! You get shot right in the the head. And this is when you say to yourself, hmm, new information. Maybe I should update my beliefs. I was going to jump up and run away, but now the odds that that's a sniper seem to have gone up in my estimation. And that, my friend, is what Bayesian thinking is all about. You test reality, you get some evidence, and that evidence affects your beliefs. It affects the likelihood of something being true, at least in your mind. But here's the crazy thing. If you have the numbers, you could actually
1: calculate the true odds. What's the new probability? What's the revised probability that the enemy is an elite sharpshooter? Because the nice thing to know about Bayes' theorem is that this is not a guess. As
0: Manson explains, if you have the actual numbers, you could actually plug them into the formula and get the answer. And I'll, I'll have the formula and everything over in the show notes. You can get a good hard look at it. But even without the formula, you can do this in a rough way in your head. In fact, you do it all the time. But in this situation, imagine if you put your helmet on a stick and then you sort of creeped it up over the edge again and it gets hit. It, the second it comes up, pa and then you go get your helmet and you put it back in, on the stick and you, you you go to a different spot and you lift it up and pa and Each time you do that, it's a test of reality. And each time you do the test, you get some more evidence. And every time you get that new evidence, it allows you to update your feelings about the situation, the likelihood, the probability that that soldier out there in the distance is a sniper. And you can probably already feel it in your gut. Yeah, the chances are going up. The odds are changing. But let's go back to Manson. He wants to tell you all about what happens when you have the actual numbers.
1: All right. This is no longer a guess. If you've got definite, determinate, objective data, you can reach a definite answer to the question, you know, what's the probability that the, the the soldier who just hit me in the head is a sharpshooter? It won't be guesswork. It'll be a definite answer.
0: So what do we know for sure? Number one, there are soldiers out there who can shoot you very easily from a distance, and there are soldiers who can't. So there are two kinds of soldiers.
1: Uh. There are two ways to get hit in the head.
0: This is called the total probability. Okay, get ready. Here comes some very simple math.
1: The probability that it's a regular soldier times the probability that you get hit in the head given that it's a regular
0: soldier. 99% of them are regular soldiers and they can shoot you in the head 20%
1: of the time. Uh, The second component of that overall total probability is the probability that you're being fired at by an elite soldier times the probability that you get hit in the head, given that you're being fired at by an elite soldier.
0: 1% of them can shoot you 90% of
1: the time. It's actually kind of simple Uh, when you think about it. Well, kind of. I don't know. It's Well, plugging it in is kind of simple. The numerator, the thing above the dividing line, the probability that it's a sharpshooter and the sharpshooter hits you in the head with one shot, that's 1% times 90%. Uh, or 0.009, and the prob- the total probability is 1% times 90%, that same 0.009, that's the, the, to- the probability that you were uh, fired upon by a sharpshooter and hit in the head, plus, uh, as the other side of the denominator, is the 99% chance it's say, regular soldier times 20% chance of getting hit in the head, All right. So the numerator in this case is 0.009. The denominator is 0.009 plus 0.198, all right? And when you work that out, uh, that's 9 divided by 207, and that's 4.34%. Now, what's so exciting about that? Well, we've got An objective, definite answer. If what I told you about the enemy soldiers and their firing abilities was the truth, okay, then we can say, you ought to say, uh, hey, looking out on the horizon, I used to believe, you know, the instant I saw that person, uh, I thought there was a 1% chance that person was a sharpshooter. Now I say, it's about a four and a half percent chance that the person's a sharpshooter. I've got a definite answer of how to change my probability. Uh, I've revised it upwards and there's, you know, there's a right answer there.
0: And if you test reality a second time by putting your helmet right above the, the edge of the trench or the hole, and it gets hit again, that new information lets you get an even better vision of what might be true.
1: If I get hit in the head twice, all right, the probability that it's a sharpshooter goes from 1% to 17%.
0: And if you can get hit in the head three times or you test reality in this way a third time and you get the same result, something something fascinating happens.
1: Uh, what do you think happens when you get three straight hits? I'm, I'm assuming it goes up a, a lot, I'm, sh- I'm assuming, yeah. Well, yeah, but not only does it go up a lot, you can say something that probably... You know, common sense wouldn't tell you or just instinct wouldn't tell you. If you get hit in the head three straight times by this unidentified soldier 400 yards in the distance, there's a better than 50% chance that it's a sharpshooter, right? Three Mm hits puts it uh, into the probably a sharpshooter category, all right? And that's the kind of answer that you can get using Bayes' theorem that – Common sense might not tell you. Common sense is going to tell you, yeah, I get hit once. I ought to be on the lookout for it's being a sharpshooter. I get hit, you know, 10 straight shots right to the head. It's almost definitely a sharpshooter. But where where do I go? Where's the transition point from thinking it might still, probably still is a regular soldier to it's probably now a sharpshooter? Common sense isn't really going to answer that. Uh, but Bayes' application
0: of Bayes' theorem, uh, uh, can. Oh boy, <laughs> math, man. If you enjoyed all of that math, then I have a treat for you because if you're a patron, you can go to the Patreon page and along with the show, the extra for this show will be the complete analysis that he put forth, all of the numbers and plugging it in and his deeper analysis he talked for a long time about all this and i cut it down and if you're a patron you get the whole thing at patreon.com slash you are not so smart and if you'd like to learn more about manson's work you can find him online at the university of mississippi's website he told me i'm sorry but that's that's where he puts all of his stuff he doesn't have uh he's not joined us in the weird world of social media not really and if you'd like to read the essay that led me to Manson's thought experiment, I will have a link to Luke Muhlhauser's blog in the show notes and at youarenotsosmart.com. I'd like you to notice something that's, you know, different about thinking in this way. Instead of thinking of beliefs as just being right or wrong, yes or no, black or white, if you instead think of yours and everyone else's beliefs as having a probability of being correct, well, there's real power in that. It allows you the freedom to be wrong and to make being wrong useful. You know, I mean, is the world riding on the back of a giant tortoise? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. But if you believe that, and you believe that you might be wrong, now you can use hypotheses and tests and Bayes' theorem to arrive at a probability of being correct. And then, when you get better tests and better hypotheses and better evidence, you can use Bayes' theorem to update those probabilities. But there is so much more that opens up when you start thinking in this way. There's more that Bayes' theory can change about the way you see the world. And in this next segment, you will meet one of the three new experts that we're going to have. One of the three new experts joining us for our next batch of fallacy episodes. Julia Galef, president of the Center for Applied Rationality. Hear what she has to say about using Bayes' theorem without the math after this break. I can't believe all the money you're spending on all these things in your life, and you're not thinking about the fact that you spend a third of your life asleep. You should be making sure you're doing it on a really, really, really nice mattress, on a good mattress, one with the right sink and the right bounce. Well, Casper mattresses are here to give that to you. They are obsessively engineered, American-made mattresses offered at a shockingly fair price, and now you can get $50.00 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com sosmart so smart and using the code so smart. These mattresses are so nice thanks to two technologies, a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. Listen to this. They deliver it straight to your door. You try it for 100 days. And if you're not happy, they come back and they pick it up. At the store, you might get a minute to try their mattress. You're going to pretend you're sleeping on it and go, hmm, I guess this will work. But with Casper, you'll actually get to sleep on it for 100 days. The price, $500 for a twin-size mattress, $950 for a king-size mattress. If you've gone shopping for mattresses, you know that is a great deal. Compared to industry averages, it's insane. So get $50 toward any mattress purchase right now by going to Casper dot com slash so smart and use the offer code so smart. Terms and conditions apply. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'm David McCraney, and this episode is about Bayes' Theorem. In the first segment of the show, we spoke with philosopher Neil A. Manson, who explained how Bayes' theorem can be used to update probabilities given that you know ahead of time the actual numbers associated with this thing that you're trying to understand. Now, in our daily lives, those numbers aren't always available, and even if they are, we might not have access to them, or it might be very difficult to analyze them maybe we just don't want to wheel out the formulas and the calculators every time we think about our beliefs. So what then? What relevance does Bayesian analysis have beyond statistics? Well, that's what we're going to discuss with our guest, Julia Galef. Julia, who are you?
2: My name is Julia Galef. Currently, I'm the president and co-founder of a nonprofit called the Center for Applied Rationality. Our mission is to develop and train people in strategies for more rational thinking. And uh, I've been interested in rational thinking for years. I studied statistics in school and I've done research in social sciences. And for the last uh, six years or so, I've been a, a writer and podcaster and public speaker myself about rationality and related topics like philosophy and cognitive science and economics.
0: Julia is one of the experts who will join us in the upcoming continuation of our Logical Fallacy series. And she also hosts a podcast that you can find at RationallySpeaking.org. By the way, I was the guest on her most recent show where I talked all about my new book, the book I'm working on about how minds change. Now, in the fallacy interviews, she brought up Bayes' theorem, sort of as an aside, almost as a, you know, this thing that everyone understands and is, you know, very familiar with. And I thought, you know, probably that's not true. I bet a lot of people aren't familiar with this. And it would be a good idea to have her introduce Bayesian reasoning on the show by way of an interview before those episodes came out. So that's what this is. That's what we're about to do. Let's pick her brain. this is going to come up and people are going to sort of just drop it casually in conversation sometimes um i like you found that this was like the this was the keystone that like made everything else make sense to me i was like oh god this is extremely useful um and very powerful so for people who have never ever ever heard of what this is what is this thing
2: so bayes rule or bayes theorem is just the simple theorem from probability that tells you how a probability should change in response to new evidence. Um, and if you want to make the small or large leap, depending on who you ask from that theorem to a way of approaching the world, you could rephrase the rule as saying how much uh, as being about not just an abstract probability, but about how much your belief, how much your degree of confidence in some idea should change as you encounter new evidence um, that's relevant to that belief.
0: Right. And it, this sounds extremely complicated. And, and if, when you first look at it, it seems that way. It's a, it's one of those math formulas that uh, you look at and go, no, thank you. But it's not actually a very complicated math formula. It's like uh, um, it's just uh, basically four parts. It's a little, little division. That uh, two things multiplied together over another thing, and then uh, that equals out a certain probability. So um, it's, but the purpose of it is to, is it's a way of, you can work out the math or you can even draw it out uh, uh, on a piece of paper and graph it, but it's a way to think about what happens when new information comes along uh, and affects an existing idea or belief or probability and you have said before uh, in your videos on YouTube that It made you realize that your beliefs the theorem made you realize that your beliefs are grayscale. What does that mean?
2: well so I think everyone already has some intuitive understanding of beliefs being grayscale because we do apply that we we do use that framework for a lot of beliefs like if uh, if you apply for a job And you're waiting to hear back about the job you get new pieces of information that might shift your confidence that you did in fact get the job like let's say you get a new piece of information that oh turns out uh they were really looking for people with the degree that i uh have and so that might boost your confidence that you got the job and then you might also find out that they had an unusually large number of applicants this year and that might lower your confidence that you got the job so you're not you know 0% 0% sure or 100% sure you got the job. It's somewhere in between, and that level fluctuates. Mm-hmm. And this feels very natural and just like what we would do by default, right? Mm-hmm. The reason that I think the concept of thinking in Grayscale is important is that we don't apply that framework reliably or systematically to all of our beliefs. So uh, to take something towards the other end of the spectrum, a lot of us have uh, political or other other ideological beliefs that we we may... If, if asked, we may claim we're not 100% certain, although some people actually do. I've had this experience many times. People will say, no, I'm 100% certain that, uh, you know, the Democrats are the better party or whatever. <laughs> um, but even if we pay lip service to the idea that we're not 100% certain, we don't act that way. So we don't actually let our confidence in the proposition that, you know, a Democrat would make a better president fluctuate in response to new information or new evidence uh the way that we would with the, you
0: know the question did i get the job yeah and i've um the the project i'm working on now i've spoken to a lot of people who um who sort of switched their belief system from going one way to the other and i feel like um it may not be true but it seems that it's true that we tend to have we tend to to consider our beliefs to be just just true or false just they are <laughs> this is true or it's not true and th- when you, when you play around with the Bayes stuff, you start to, to, you start to see a new type of thinking tool manifest that suggests that instead of thinking everything is either a zero or a 100, um, that you think more in terms of how confident are you that right. what you, th- what you believe is true. and, it is a different way of seeing the world that I think might be not our default setting. What do you think about that?
2: Right. So actually this is important to bring up. Um, I, I alluded at earlier to this leap, smaller, large leap to go from this uncontroversial Bayes theorem to a kind of Bayesian mindset or Bayesian epistemology, a way of viewing the world. And one element of that leap is the idea that, that, it makes sense or it, it can be meaningful to talk in terms of you know your beliefs being probabilities. So like uh so okay, let me, let me rewind a little bit. Yeah. If you roll a die, you can say, you know, there's a uh a one in six probability of it coming up three. If you flip a coin, there's a one in two probability of it coming up heads. Um and you could define these probabilities in terms of frequencies, like one in every six rolls, the die will come up three on average. And that sort of makes sense, but it gets a little fuzzier when you're talking about things that don't have a well-defined probability distribution, like a die roll or a coin flip. Mm-hmm. So something like, uh, uh, would, uh, like when, when Hillary Clinton becomes president, um, assuming she becomes president, um, is inflation going to go up or down? Uh, there's no real like you can't repeat that experiment again and again and again. Uh even if you could have Hillary be president 10 terms in a row, lots of things about the world have changed and so it's not really the same independent experiment the way a coin flip is independent each time. So, it doesn't really make sense to define to talk about what is the probability that inflation will go up or down under Hillary's uh presidency. This in, in frequentist terms, the same way you could define the probability of getting a three when you roll a die in terms of frequencies. So you have to talk instead about your subjective confidence, um, your credence, sometimes we say, mm-hmm. uh, in that proposition. And some people, some philosophers, for example, aren't willing to make that leap and say that you can talk about probabilities in that way. I think it makes sense. A lot of people think, think it makes sense. Um, And one argument I think in favor of making sense is you can cash out those subjective probabilities in terms of the odds at which you would be willing to bet. That that's a way to define what I mean by probability. Like I would accept, you know, uh, two to one odds that inflation will go up if Hillary becomes president. That kind of thing. So anyway, that's a premise underlying the kind of Bayesian mindset or Bayesian epistemology that I think is important to highlight explicitly.
0: Yeah, the way this this. The way this finally like totally snapped together in my mind it was a a thought experiment, a an intuition pump that um, uh, kind of floats around in in the world of um, um, statisticians and skeptics and, and and the like, of the idea of when you there's a if you have a if you have a quarter, let's say, or you have a trick coin that has uh, that always comes up either heads or tails. Uh, But you don't know which way it is trick, uh, which way the trick is set up and you flip it and then you um, it lands in your hand. You put your hand over it and you ask yourself, what are the odds that it's either heads or tails? And, you know, obviously, it's always going to come up one or the other. But you don't know which way it's come. It's come up. And the idea behind the thought experiment is to sort of point out that the probability isn't necessarily in the coin. The probability, probabilities are something that brains come up with to try to make sense of the world. Is that sort of a good way of looking at it?
2: Right. Yeah. The probability is a feature of your state of mind and your degree of knowledge about the world, not, not a feature of the world itself. So another thought, I like that thought experiment, but another way to get at it is if uh, I flip a coin and I Look at it, but I'm hiding it from you. I'm covering it with my hand. And someone asks us, asks each of us, what is the probability the coin came up heads? You know, we'll have different probabilities, right? Your probability should be, you know, one half because you don't know. And coins are, you know, have a 50 50 chance of coming up either way. But for me, I know that the coin, say, came up tails. So for me, the probability is basically 0%, building right. in a tiny, tiny bit of wiggle room in terms of maybe me misremembering or mis, you know, perceiving the coin.
0: <laughs> because, uh, so, uh, because. And so we
2: have Abilities. And that doesn't mean one of us is wrong. It just means that we have different states of knowledge about the world and different, um, you know, epistemologies.
0: And this, so this is such an important, uh, point to make because like, the way I made it, it make sense to myself because this is, I, I, <laughs> because I'm, because I'm a dork is that I thought that, um, I was thinking about data from Star Trek. Uh, you know, could probably see a coin flip and know exactly what it's probably going to land on off of the initial conditions of the coin flip. You know, the position of the finger and the air, the air movement of the room and the right. weight, the weight of the, all these, all these millions and millions of factors that really are at place whenever you flip a coin and also do affect that it's not a pure 50-50, even in the real world. Right. But, so there
2: isn't really. We don't really have randomness in the world. You know, except at the quantum level, I guess. We just have lack of full information.
0: So yeah, so that means, you know, so if I if I flip a coin in front of data, he's going to have a different probability than I'm gonna have, like you were saying in your example. And which means the probability is not in the coin, the probability is in our brains. Right. Okay, so uh and if the probability and you were what well, you were the path you were about to take us down there is that um that means that we we don't, we don't have perfect knowledge of the world, and therefore our probabilities right now necessarily have to change when we get new information. They either have to go up or down. Um, and this, oddly enough, is not kind of the way we think about belief. You had an example. I think the example that will work well for people listening would be um, the car crash example. Could you go through that?
2: Yeah, so... Uh, I think a typical thing that we might do if we got into a minor car accident is, unless it was clearly obviously our fault, um, usually it's more in a a gray area, uh, we would ask ourselves, well, is there a story that I can tell, uh, a plausible story about how this car crash was not my fault? You know, did the, the guy turn too quickly and not leave me a Enough time to break, or was that sign not visible enough um, and often there is a plausible story that you can tell, and if so, uh we feel like well, we've just found a story that allows us to maintain our level current level of confidence in our driving ability, therefore we don't need to update our confidence at all um, and often you know the story will be true, often it was not your fault, but you don't know for sure. And the fact that you got into a car accident, should and should and it does provide you some evidence that you're less good of a driver than you thought you were. So mm-hmm. probably at this point, I should explain the Bayesian definition of evidence, because that's kind of crucial for, <laughs> right, for making yeah. the case that you should update your confidence in response to this evidence. So the Bayesian definition of evidence is it, it asks you to compare how likely or probable something is in one world in which a hypothesis is true compared to a different world in which the hypothesis is false. So an intuitive way to grok this definition would be, uh, David, if I asked you, hey, I just got my hair done. How do you like it? And you said, oh, it looks good. How much evidence does that answer provide for me about the, the idea that you actually think my hair looks good? Well, not a ton of evidence. I mean, I don't know you that well, but people in general, if you ask them, you know, how do you like my hair? You know, most people will say it looks fine or it looks good, even in the world in which they don't really think it looks good. And so the fact that the evidence that they said it looks good doesn't really help you distinguish which of those worlds you're in, because that evidence would look the same, you know, probably look the Mm. same in both worlds. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you ask someone renowned for their honesty, like I have this friend, let's call her Jane, who speaks her mind. And if I ask Jane, how does my hair look? And Jane said it looks good. That evidence is very unlikely to occur in the world in which Jane doesn't think my hair looks good. Like it could still occur. Like maybe she just has recently resolved to try to be more tactful or maybe she has reason to believe that I'm in a particularly fragile state today and she just, you know, will make an exception to her usual rule of honesty. It it could still happen, but it's much less likely to happen in the world in which she doesn't like my hair than in the world in which she does. So that, if that evidence occurs, that's strong evidence for the hypothesis that she likes my hair. So that's the definition, the Bayesian definition of evidence. Uh, Mm -hmm. Returning to the car crash example, the question that we should be asking ourselves after that car crash is, how much likelier is it for me to get into a car crash in the world in which I'm not a good driver compared to the world in which I am a good driver? And I've made that a binary question, like good versus not good driver. Obviously, there's lots of different levels of good you could be. I'm just sort of simplifying it to make it right, right, right. Um But I, I think it's pretty self-evident that people who are not good drivers are, on average, more likely to get into car accidents. Than people who are good drivers. So, Uh the fact that you got into a car accident, even if there is a plausible story you could tell about why it might not be your fault, that should downgrade your confidence in the hypothesis, I am a good driver, at least Uh a little bit.
0: Yeah. And this is um, so, this is a great example of how we are resistant to admitting that we're wrong. And that's the necessary step to updating your beliefs and being correct. And if you in this example, if you're fiddling around with your smartphone and you're um you know uh trying to fish a dorito out from underneath the seat and then you hit somebody in front of you um and you do the typical thing that human beings do, which is hem and haw and hedge and justify and 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 do all these mental gymnastics so that you can maintain that you are in fact a good driver, but this is an outlier case this is an anomalous event that doesn't count um that's not the Bayesian way of looking at things. The Bayesian way of looking at things is to say, well, this is new evidence. Let's apply this evidence to our existing hypothesis. Or if you have like a complete theoretical model, let's apply it to that complete theoretical model and see what happens, see how it adjusts the sliders. Um, And you'd have to admit, I mean, this is, I mean, this is such a, it feels like you know this is such a great, a totally new way of looking at the world compared to what you're you what you're expected to do, and you know in this case you'd have to admit that um, yeah, my confidence in my driving ability has gone down. Um,
2: I mean, but, to be clear, I do think that that we do instinctively apply Bayesian reasoning sometimes. Like in, right, okay. In, Like in social situations, often I think we have an instinct for Bayesian reasoning, although not always. It does go wrong sometimes. But in the case of like interpreting how likely someone is to be telling the truth, for example, or how much you should update on their comment. I think we do have an instinctive. uh, It's just it's like many principles of thinking. We just don't apply them consistently. And and having marinated in the Bayesian framework, I think, just makes you more you applied more consistently.
0: It's fascinating that you mentioned that in social situations because you know in um in psychology in many psychology experiments that uh I think one that comes to mind um is the um oh man what is it called the the test with the cards I'll have to look it up uh, uh the
2: Wasson. Yes,
0: that's it. Yes, I, exactly. I oh my don't god. Know yeah, Lawson. yeah, I've heard it. Wasson and Wason. Let's just yeah. let's do uh Let's do Watson. So the yeah uh, the selection task the 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 which is you know you you lay out four cards and one two have numbers and two have colors and or sometimes two have letters and two have colors.
2: So I I can ex- explain the the original task a little more if you
0: want. Yeah, go for it. Go the for it.
2: the yeah. people are asked to to decide to determine whether these four cards laid out on the table violate mm-hmm. a certain rule, and the rule is something like all cards with even numbers on one side have a red dot on the other side or something. And so some of the cards are showing numbers, some of the cards are showing dots and people are allowed to turn over two cards. I think I forget how many they're allowed to turn over. But basically uh, people will, will always think to turn over the cards with even numbers to check if they have red dots on the other side, but they often won't think to turn over the cards that have say a green dot because mm-hmm. if you turn over a card with a green dot and it turns out on the other side is an even number, then that's a violation of the rule. But that's just not—that's uh, not the most obvious, self-evident uh, thing to check if—if if it's a violation. So that—that that doesn't come naturally to people. But if you take the exact same structure of problem, isomorphic problem, but but reskin it with a, a social context. So you ask people, Hey, here are four people check to make sure that these four people don't violate the rule. Everyone who's drinking must be over 21. People, people do it. Then they'll check to make sure that, you know, people Uh who are drinking are over 21. They'll also check to make sure that people who are underage are not drinking. Right. Same problem. But in a social situation, we know what to do. So
0: that's, that's, that's such a, uh, that's, that's such a great example because it it, it totally shows what you were saying earlier that, uh, um in one context we go bayesian or in one context we'll go with probabilistic thinking and in one right. con- in another context it just turns into math and it doesn't make sense and i don't understand right. and we and we fail to follow through with with a seeking disconfirmatory evidence for our hypothesis which often is the best path to finding the truth of what is and is not so about this particular assumption that we're making yeah. and although
2: i don't think it's the case that in all social situations uh, or even systematically in social situations, we apply and in, instinctively apply Bayesian thinking. Mm. Um, in fact, I have a, a recent example for myself in which I was not being Bayesian, and then I caught myself later. Uh, I was having a meeting with someone, a colleague of mine, who I'm going to call Bob, <laughs> and Bob was complaining about this mutual colleague of ours, who I'll call Amy. And for background, I had prior reason to believe that Bob was jealous or competitive of, with Amy. Like she had, I thought he might feel like she had sort of infringed on his turf uh, work-wise. Anyway, so he was complaining about how she had been late to some meetings recently. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, I knew it. This just proves I was right. Bob is jealous of Amy. That's why he's complaining about her. And then... Later, I thought to ask myself, well, okay, how much evidence does Bob's complaining about Amy actually provide for my hypothesis that he is jealous of Amy? So I, I did that thought experiment of comparing these two hypothetical worlds, one in which I'm right, and Bob is jealous of Amy, and one in which I'm wrong, and Bob is not jealous of Amy. And I asked, how likely is this evidence, the complaining, to occur in each world? And I realized You know, even in the world in which he's not jealous of Amy, I would still think it was quite likely that he would complain because uh, he doesn't like when people are late to things. And also he complains a lot. So, you know, maybe it's slightly less likely that he would complain in the world in which he wasn't jealous. So maybe this provides a little bit of evidence for that hypothesis, but not much. Like I shouldn't I shouldn't be updating nearly as strongly towards that hypothesis as I had been instinctively. Um, because I had just been asking myself, you know, does this evidence, this complaining fit with my hypothesis of the jealousy? And it does fit. I just had neglected the fact that it also fits with the alternate hypothesis.
0: Yeah. There's, um, uh, there's another example you, you, you give on one of your YouTube videos that I really like about the idea of, um, um, I think it's a, a plumber or someone like that comes to your house, but they start snooping around in your other rooms. And so yes. you, start, you think to yourself, is this person casing my house to rob me? Casing and the then, joint. Yeah. So is there, yeah. how, how would you, how do you apply uh, Bayesian reasoning to that situation?
2: Okay. So at this point I should say that there's two big parts to Bayesian updating. There's your prior belief, your prior confidence, like how confident were you in this belief before you got the evidence Um, And then there's the evidence itself. How strong is that evidence? How much should you update away from your prior? Um, So the plumber example is more a case of uh, how it's important to be Bayesian with respect to uh, remembering your prior. Um, So let me first uh, give a classic example of Bayesian updating, and then I'll tell the story of the plumber who came to our Mm -hmm. house. So, uh, this is a question that, that gets posed to doctors and doctors in training. And, uh, it's a a very simple question that doctors should be able to get right, but in fact, a huge proportion of them get it wrong. So the question is if someone comes in for a breast cancer screening Mm -hmm. and, uh, your breast cancer screening test is, let's say it's 90% accurate. So 90% 90% of the time when someone does have breast cancer, the test successfully says you have breast cancer. And 90% of the time when they don't have breast cancer, the test says successfully says you don't have breast cancer. Someone comes in, they take the test, the test says you have breast cancer. What is the probability that they actually do have breast cancer? I'm pausing so people can develop their mm-hmm. intuitive guess.
0: And, and there's an important an important aside here is that This is not just a textbook example, but this is something that in psychology experiments has been asked of um, doctors and people in medical school. And um, I'll let you continue from there.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, and it's a real example. It's not just a made-up word problem. Uh, This sort of thing does happen all the time. So some people will say, well, the probability is 90% because the test is 90% accurate. Uh, What they're forgetting is that there is... the, the probability depends in part on how common is breast cancer, right? Like if, if only one in a billion people had breast cancer, then the fact that the test said you had breast cancer should still not, you should still not be that confident because it's more likely that the test made a mistake than that. You are the one in a billion person, right? So that prior probability should factor in. And many doctors do, they do remember that, <laughs> And so they tried to sort of adjust intuitively. They're like, okay, so, you know, the test is pretty accurate, but also, like, most people don't have breast cancer, so it's probably something like 70 or 80% likely they have breast cancer. Um, the true po- probability is much lower. Uh, I don't remember the actual statistics in the population, but let's say one in 1,000 people has breast cancer, and the test is right, uh, or the test is wrong one in 10 times, Um it's still much more likely that the test made a mistake than that you have breast cancer. So this is an example of how uh, we often don't, we we forget about the prior probability. We just focus on the new evidence, like a a social example, since those are easier to grok intuitively is if, you know, I call my friend, she doesn't pick up the the call and she never calls me back. Uh, if I were a socially anxious person, hypothetically, I might intuitively feel like, oh, God, she's mad at me. She hates me. She doesn't want to be friends with me anymore. And, you know, yes, someone not returning your call is a little bit of evidence that they don't like you or are mad at you or something. But I have all this other prior reason to be very confident that she likes me and is, you know, is probably not mad at me. And I'm implicitly neglecting all of that prior confidence that I should have that my friend is not mad at me. Um, So going back to the example of the plumber, this was something that happened to me in real life a few months ago. I was renting this Airbnb with some colleagues of mine and we hired someone to come check out some plumbing issue. And while they were in the house they we saw them like looking into other rooms that you know were clearly not the bathroom or kitchen and and also they just seemed like a little shifty i don't know who knows we were maybe paranoid it was a pretty bad neighborhood or something and so after they left we were discussing amongst ourselves like well you know were they sort of checking out the other rooms to see what valuables there are because we had heard stories about people um like plumbers who are sort of in league with robbers uh, checking out houses to see, is this worth robbing, et cetera. And, and then, you know, telling their friends and then the robbers coming back later that night or something like that. So we were feeling worried about this and the way we, and we were wondering like, should we leave the house? Should we go get a different Airbnb? And the way we made the decision was we looked up base rates, which is sorry, another name for priors base Uh rates on, how common home robberies are in that area. Um, And then we estimated how strong is this evidence, like in a world in which, you know, we are going to get robbed, uh, how likely is it that we would see this evidence of the plumbers looking in different rooms compared to a world in which we aren't going to get robbed, they're perfectly honest plumbers, how likely is it that we would see them looking in different rooms? And we decided that given the relative rarity of home robberies in that area, like prior strongly being in favor of we're not going to get robbed tonight, and the evidence being only moderate, not overwhelming, we decided, like, on balance, we should not be that much more worried. We should not be that worried about getting robbed tonight.
0: (laughs) This is, uh, I love how, first of all, I love how insanely nerdy that whole thing is. Like, we looked up base rates. uh, Oh, totally. (laughs) It didn't even occur
2: to me as I was telling that story that that was nerdy because we do (laughs) that all the
0: freaking time. Uh, We looked up base rates. The, uh, the, (laughs) the, the, you know, I think that, um, I think this might be, I, I think that there's, um, I want to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence before we part. But before we get to that, I think that it, this is a good moment to push away from the table and just kind of look at this and think. So let's say someone is listening to this, they're not going to go look up the math, they're not going to do test problems. They, what is, what is sort of the, what is the benefit, for a person like that, what could you tell them is the benefit of thinking in this way? And what is, what is sort of the philosophical version of Bayesian reasoning that, that you can take with you as advice about how to deal with the world?
2: Well, I'd say there are a number of non-mathematical principles that I use all the time, like literally multiple times a day that fall out of the math of Bayes' rule and don't require you to uh, plug numbers into a formula or look up base rates on the internet or anything like that. <laughs> One of them is thinking in grayscale that we discussed already, in which, you know, sometimes you have to just remind yourself, like, I should not be perfectly confident in any belief. I should have varying degrees of belief, you know, varying degrees of grayscale, you know, from, zero, mm-hmm. from white to black. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I encounter new pieces of evidence, like new information or even new experiences, um, I get, you know, I, I find out that someone else has a certain opinion. All of that is evidence in the sense that it is at least somewhat more likely to occur in a world in which my hypothesis is true than in a world in which my hypothesis is false or vice versa. And so I should regularly, regularly or ideally constantly be updating my the confidence that I have in that belief. I should, Mm -hmm. I should be letting that belief fluctuate and most evidence is not going to be definitive one way or the other. Um, most of the time, even if, you know, uh, the economy is doing better under a Republican president, or I find out that some smart person whose judgment I respect turns out they're actually Republican. Like, both of those things, I think, are at least some evidence for uh, the like Republican ideology being better for the country. Mm-hmm. A little bit of evidence, um, and I should acknowledge that um, because it might be that over time enough such evidence will accumulate that I'll that I should, you know, zoom out and say, okay, on balance, I am significantly more confident in in the Republican platform than I was two years ago. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to get to that point unless I have. Let in all of that small to medium size evidence,
0: and and it's also important, I think, to to take into account that when we we gather evidence by testing reality, and sometimes we do that with our very imperfect senses that go through a whole chain of imperfect cognitive processes, and sometimes we do it using devices and tools and things. So, like you know, in the cancer example, you're using some sort of Technology, either a machine or some um, chemistry, and when you test reality, the test itself has a—you know—it how accurate the test is changes how we make our uh, how we update our probabilities as well, because the um, the what actually is true never changes, just no matter how good or bad the test is. Um, So. And the probability itself is in the brain, not in uh, the external world either. Right. So,
2: well, I, what I, actually is true does change over time. Like this oh, is why yeah, 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 social yeah. science is so hard, that's, right? That's,
0: that's true. The, that's the true.
2: reality of how people interact with each other in their environments, cetera, actually changes
0: <laughs> that's, that's really t- hard. Totally, yeah, that's true, and that does make things uh, more difficult. And um, um, but let's say you're trying to determine, you know, uh, you know, if you're talking about like celestial bodies out there that that last for Billions of years, you know, the tests we use to sample that aspect of reality um, will affect um, our confidence, and sometimes it's the test that also has to be considered whenever you're making this analysis. So it's a, um, I, and I would I would urge people because to sort of piggyback off of what you just said that since the social world is in flux and there's a lot of interpretation um, and a lot of variables. Not only is that a moving target, but your the way that we typically sample that world is extremely imperfect. So you add those two together and it's um, having that black or white view of things is really, really uh, a poor way to create models of reality compared to this Bayesian way of doing things, which is to update your hypothesis every single time you get what appears to be new evidence. And that's a for me, that's a. That is a completely new a different way of looking at the world, and I find that i've met many people who uh, kind of seem to be either on one either in one way of thinking or in the other they're in the world of certainty or they're they, they're okay to live in the world of uncertainty and um, the a lot of the problems that we deal with and a lot of the um, arguments that we have with people on the other side. I think a lot of times it comes down to people who live in that world of certainty versus people who live in that world of uncertainty on that issue, on that specific issue that we're talking about. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you well, find that to be true?
2: I want to add one caveat, mm-hmm. uh, as usual, which is that you know I'm all for acknowledging uncertainty. And I think in general, people are more certain than they should be about things. But there is a failure mode uh, here that Someone might even have been Eliezer Dudkowski termed the fallacy of gray, which is, you know, it's a mistake to think that things are all black and white, but it's also a mistake to think that everything is the same shade of gray.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So and I, I find this a lot often as an excuse when people don't want to acknowledge evidence like in cases where the evidence is pretty strong towards one hypothesis, but people don't really want to acknowledge that they'll say like, well, we just can't know, you know, it's just uncertain. Uh, Uh, (laughs) like I, you know, that evidence could be flawed. You just, maybe like it could be, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, we don't know. And so there is a kind of discipline involved in really asking yourself, okay, what would I honestly expect? How, how, um, honestly, how much would I expect this evidence to occur in one world versus another? And really asking yourself that question instead of just um, defaulting always to, you know, it's uncertain.
0: Mm-hmm. It's it's hard being a person. It is
2: hard <laughs> being a person. And I realize I've made this sound very uh, taxing to be constantly updating your beliefs. You know, most of my beliefs, I have, you know, millions of beliefs probably if you, mm-hmm. if you get down to the level of like, uh, is Anna in the office today? <laughs> right. Are we going to have Indian or Thai food for lunch today? Like, I probably have <laughs> millions of beliefs at that level or bigger. Um, right. I'm not constantly updating the vast majority of them, and I think that's fine. This is more of just a framework. It, it's, a good, it's a good rigor to have trained yourself in um, that I think can sometimes be impactful in day-to-day life, but is becomes more important when you're dealing with like medium to large size decisions, and I think it so, helps to have yeah. like trained that in general in order to to think correctly about the larger decisions,
0: yeah, totally. If you think of it as like let's pull out the bayesian engine and 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 crank it up to start looking at this problem, you know there are certain things that you know if if a social situation or a legal situation, if a piece of legislation could ha- harms people or affects people's lives and their livelihoods and their children and their income and all these things, it's a good time to bring in let's do the thing where we look at evidence and let evidence update our, our <laughs> beliefs and if it's um, if it's an, a matter of raw science or if it's a matter of um you know something that has an impending doom on our civilization like climate change that sort of thing that's the good time to bring it out but uh yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about um, uh, it is extremely there, I mean there's a reason why the brain doesn't do this all the time because it is extremely cognitive uh it is ex- extremely taxing cognitively to do this and that, that and so that's a good segue to this last thing i want to talk about before we part ways today is that um um one of the things that uh that actually has helped us kind of get a better grasp of how we believe and what belief actually is uh neurologically uh and is this is messing around with artificial intelligence and uh, i've actually spoken to a couple people uh for the for the book project i'm working on about artificial intelligence and also met the people, uh, up at MIT that have, uh, that do life, knot, which is the uploading your, your brain to the internet when you die to hopefully live forever. Um, and th- all of these, uh, those people and the people, uh, who have, who are working on some of the hard problems of artificial intelligence all have, are all dealing with belief in a way that, in a way that social science is necess- not necessarily, uh, in a way that social sciences may not necessarily be working on those problems um, because they're kind of doing it from a reductionist, bottom-up kind of approach. And you uh, have spoken about this in the past, and one of the things you... you, One of the um, revelations that came out of artificial intelligence work that you talk about is the idea that the brain is probably not a Bayes' net. So what is a Bayes' net, and why is the human brain not one of those things?
2: Well... A Bayes net is just a way of representing relationships between variables or or between probabilities. You could say mm-hmm. uh, so. It's not um, like it's it's just a mathematical or a statistical concept, but it has been useful in a lot of artificial intelligence algorithms. So, uh, an example of a Bayes net would be: you have know, three variables. One of them is, did Bob get into Harvard? Another one is, does Bob have a very high IQ? And the last one is, is Bob a legacy at Harvard? Like, did one of his parents or grandparents go to Harvard, which is something that schools like Harvard use to decide whether to admit you. Mm -hmm. So you have these three variables, and they're interdependent in the sense that if you found out that Bob got into Harvard, that should increase the probabilities that you put on both the variable, does Bob have a very high IQ? And also the variable, is Bob a legacy at Harvard? And then again, if you find out that Bob is a legacy at Harvard, that should decrease the probability that you put on Bob having a very high IQ, somewhat. Um, And that is not because being a legacy makes you dumb. It's because if you are a legacy, then it's less necessary to have a high IQ or a very high IQ to get into Harvard. So you should have less confidence that that was the case for Bob. Um, so, uh, in a Bayes net, uh, the way it's implemented in AI is when you change one variable, like you change the probability, uh, that you have on one of those variables that change just automatically instantly propagates throughout the network to all of the probabilities that are related. Right. Uh So you change the probability on the got into Harvard node, and then the probabilities on the IQ and the legacy nodes instantly change in response. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, as in many cases, I think it's instructive to just compare how this process works in an AI versus how it works in a human brain. Um, Sometimes the human brain will automatically change related probabilities. Like if the probability I put on the node uh, is Thai delight restaurant open today for lunch, um, which is the place I go for lunch, like if that changes because I see a sign saying closed, then pretty automatically the probability that I am putting on, will I be eating Thai food today for lunch will change as well. That's pretty automatic, uh-huh. but it often doesn't happen. Like the change often doesn't propagate automatically.
0: Yes. This is the thing that, okay. I mean, you totally blew my mind. This, when you, when I listened to you talk about this, I, I actually uh, have in front of me like these, um, Ridiculous, like uh, Nash, <laughs> uh, beautiful mind scrawls all over this piece of paper because, because, because uh, I, I need call for help. I, no, I, I need it, but I needed to hear. To, this was something that I desperately needed to make sense of something that I was witnessing. um, Interviewing people who um, have somehow, you know the in the process of of doing a very strong core belief change it's it was uh bothering me that people would that that's this this sh- this propagation across the network that you talk about it wasn't happening because i was like it doesn't make any sense to me because you know all these nodes are connected if you think about one example it uh, would be like you know someone believes the is a deeply believes it, has deep religious beliefs you know believes god the christian um Abrahamic God is a real dude with a beard floating in a cloud, that whole thing. And then they also believe uh uh, homosexuality, the LGBT uh behaviors all are bad and are sinful and evil. And then they, you know, these are two nodes. And now a third node might be uh should same-sex marriage is be uh is same-sex marriage good or bad and they know Mm -hmm. they think that they have they have these three different beliefs and they change their belief about same-sex marriage uh, or they change their belief about um, LGBT individuals. And those two probability, those two belief nodes are linked in a way that that, that the probabilities move around, but sometimes not. And, um, but, and then it, 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 what i see is that each one of these nodes is completely independent in fact if you completely lose one of these nodes if you if you become an atheist or you decide same sex marriage is okay or if you decide the lgbt individuals are not abominations none of those will necessarily affect the other two nodes like you can you can keep beliefs that seem to be necessarily connected to other beliefs and um if that didn't make sense to me until you laid out the fact that the brain is not a bayes net we don't That's not how human beings, uh, update their vast collection of beliefs they use to make sense of the world.
2: Right. And because it would be very computationally expensive, right? Like every time you get new information to have to ask yourself, not only, you know, should I update the probability about the directly related belief? Like, like, you know, if Anna, my colleague looks upset today should I update my belief not just about is Anna upset today, but also about how upset is Anna in general and also how upset are people in general and also how good am I at reading people in general? Like these are all related <laughs> beliefs, right? And I'm sure uh-huh. I could come up with thousands more that are at least a little bit dependent mm-hmm. on the question, is Anna upset today? Um, but it would just, it would be paralyzing to be always thinking about all of those beliefs. And so, you know, the brain would never get anything else done.
0: Yeah. And this is, this to me, sorry to interrupt you there, but this to me, uh... This is like one of the greatest frustrations that I've had arguing with people, both in the, in the, in meat space and cyberspace. I have had this deep frustration where you feel like, um, uh, if you can just get somebody to see this one thing, then the rest of their, <laughs> everything else will naturally right, follow. Yeah, logically. I, it yeah,
2: I, yeah. I
0: see that, I see that constantly. Like right now there's, um, there's a lot of talk online about these new laws that have come up, these, uh, religious, um, uh, sort of freedom laws that make it where people can discriminate against LGBT people. Um, and I, I keep seeing, you know, these especially on Facebook. I see these arguments where people will be like, they will try so hard to catch somebody in a, um, an obvious contradiction in the, the, the raw text of the Bible, you know, like, uh, well, you know, you shouldn't, it also says you shouldn't wear this. And it also says you shouldn't eat this. Um, and I can see that the goal of that arguer is to catch that person in that contradiction and they feel like it's going to be this cascade domino effect where they're going to be like, oh, you know what? That is a contradiction. Maybe this whole thing isn't right. Maybe I'm not right about this. Maybe the, maybe I should, maybe I should delete my belief in. My, uh, you know, religious convictions, and then that means obviously that uh, that same-sex marriage is okay, and this law is bad. And you know, he could feel there's like this person is trying to uh, to attack one node with the intention of um, uh, sabotaging the whole network of nodes. Right, that'll and, be the jenga um,
2: block that I have to pull. To.
0: The jenga block, yes, that's such a great way to look at it. But that is just simply not how brains work. It seems.
2: Yeah, that's and good, you know, I. I keep this principle in mind. It's not that I'm trying to be as close to an AI as possible. So I'm trying to constantly update all of my related beliefs. It's more that like when something, when a belief comes up as being, you know, something depends on this, like we have to make a decision based on this or someone disagrees with me. And so all of a sudden I'm like, Hmm, why do I believe this? I now it's instinctive for me now to, to, Look for the source of that belief to see if that's still relevant or if I still endorse that source Um, or if that source is long since defunct, it's long since been deleted and that I just had never noticed that I should delete also or like significantly downgrade my confidence in this related belief. So it's Uh just a a thing that I check frequently that I didn't check before I, I had this concept.
0: Everyone is going to want to keep up with you and you will be featured prominently in the upcoming episodes about logical fallacies. But for now, how could someone find you and keep up with your work and all the rest?
2: Well, my personal website is JuliaGaliff.com. I don't update it that often, though. I have a channel on YouTube. Um, if you just search for Julia Galif, I'm the only Julia Galiff, not just on YouTube, but in the world, in fact, Oh wow! Um, all other Julia Galiffs are pretenders. <laughs> no, it's actually just a super rare last name. I also have my own podcast that I've been doing for the last six years. It's called rationally speaking. Um, I interview scientists, social scientists, philosophers, science communicators, um, it's biweekly, and you can find us at rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. Um, and then I welcome people to get in touch with me personally. My email address is julia at rationality.org.
0: Oh, great. Are you on Twitter?
2: I am, yes. It's Julia Galeff, all one
0: word. The only one. Thank you so much, Julia. It's been fantastic. And I, you know, we only even scratched the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest part of the surface of it. So I urge everyone to go out and learn all they can. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us.
2: It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you, David.
0: By the way, the You Are Not So Smart podcast is a proud member of the Boing Boing podcast network. For more great shows like Gweek and Futility Closet and Flash Forward, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. I promise you will love all of them. If you would like to know more about either of the guests in this episode, just go to the show notes or to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find all the previous episodes of this show at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, boingboing.net, and, or again, you are not so smart.com. Also, look, why don't you um think about maybe supporting the show through Patreon? For one one little dollar, you can get all of the show extras that I put out, you can get the show early, and no advertising. That's right. None. Head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart for more details. Okay, coming up, a cookie. Yes, one of those interesting and strange cookies that you guys send me. I have one in front of me that looks like a little boat. It looks like a little boat, and I'm going to eat it right after I say thanks again to the MIT Press for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to go to mitpress.com slash smart to check out their newest books in science, philosophy, technology, and language. That's mitpress.com slash smart. And definitely keep an eye out for Susanna's fascinating book, which is available right now. It's called The Human Advantage, A New Understanding of How Our Brain Became Remarkable. With the letter C. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that start with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's good enough for me. C in each episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, cookie. I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader of the books, but usually a listener of the podcast who sends an email with a cookie recipe in it. And then we look at that recipe. Amanda and I go, Mmm that looks so good. And then we make it for the show. And uh, if you are chosen, that means that you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book in the mail. Now, Amanda makes the cookies, and sometimes they're extremely weird and complicated. Amanda McRady, that's my wife, and she makes these cookies. And listen, this time, they're little boats. (laughs) They're little French boats. Let me tell you the story behind this. I have it right here in front of me. This is an email from Andreas von Norman, and Andreas writes: Hey, David, I'm a You Are Not So Smart fan from Tübingen, Germany. I might be pronouncing that wrong, and I'm sorry. Listening to your awesome podcast during my daily commute. Thank you. Now, what can I contribute? The Germans typically concentrate all their cookie love and effort on the Christmas season, and they always overdo it and get fed up for the rest of the year. Nothing really stands out in this seasonal cookie flood. But our French neighbors do have something noteworthy to offer cookie-wise, I think and that is the Navite Provencal cookie. Navite means little boat, while Provencal is a reference to the coastal southern French region or province as its heritage. It might look unassuming compared to some of the beasts you have been testing on the show, but these cookies will knock you out with their aroma. They sell for around $30 per kilo in Paris. That makes no sense. I don't believe that. Well, I, I believe you. I can't not believe you. You're You sent me a cookie recipe. Well, with this recipe, I found you can recreate them for almost nothing. Isn't that a great course's good deal? (laughs) Uh, the magical ingredient is orange blossom water. And let me stop this email for a second. This took forever to find, but we were committed to making this cookie and we got some orange blossom water shipped to us just for this recipe. Mandy found that and had it sent over. So back to the, back to the email. It is, uh, which is found its short way from Morocco across the Mediterranean Sea to southern France's kitchen. It will give the cookies a heavenly citrus scent and make sniffing them just as enjoyable as eating. The recipe is simple, but it depends entirely on orange blossom water. My advice is look for the best quality. And the email goes on to explain how to find that stuff, which we used. And then start off with an amount given in the recipe. It's easy to overdose. If you do, the flavor will be overwhelming. And do not fear the olive oil. It's all right. So thank you so much, Andreas. Von Norman, it says this must be had with tea. I agree with you. I've already sampled this, full disclosure, and it is a cookie made for tea. All right. What goes in this thing? Eggs, sugar, olive oil, a lemon zest, uh, a lemon that's been zested, and then three tablespoons of orange blossom water and flour. That's it. Now, it sounds simple, but no. Not only do you have to uh, cook these, as you are getting them ready for the oven, you have to shape them into little boats. (laughs) so you have to roll them up and cut them in a certain way. And then you, uh, also the dough has to be chilled for a long time before you even do that. And then you put them in the oven and you cook them. And um, I have a little boat in front of me that smells like oranges. I don't know what to say. Orange blossom water is a very citrus smelling cookie. Let's taste this cookie right now.
1: Mmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: I can honestly say nothing I've ever eaten tastes like this. It's this very difficult to do that thing where I try to connect this to other things I've tried. Nothing tastes like this. Mm. I can say that, you know, have you ever um, just eaten the, <laughs> the, the orange peel of an orange a little bit? Just like a little bit, just the inside of it before it gets bitter and you know that's a different orange flavor. This has kind of that flavor on top of a lot of savory oily tastes. It's a very sturdy cookie. Like I could I think I could throw this against the wall and it wouldn't it wouldn't break into pieces. It wouldn't shatter. It's a little boat. I re, I actually earlier we put apricot or apricot. Apricot jam in the middle of the boat where somebody would sit and and ate it that way. And it was so good. And yes, perfect tea cookie because it would hold up its consistency. This cookie feels to me like something you would make in the time of, uh, you know, Renaissance paintings to, you know, the prince is coming, <laughs> the, uh, the prince is coming to eat <laughs> and we need to make those little boats he loves so much. This is what this cookie feels like. It's something meant for royalty. It's not meant to just, you know, to eat 10 of these in a row. This is meant to display your prowess as a cook. I am so amazed at Amanda's ability to make these. They're little boats. I'm eating a little cookie boat. Here we go. One more bite.
1: Hmm.
0: Andreas. Oh, so good. Such a good cookie. Thank you so much for sending this in. It's delicious. And you crossed the border and brought in another culture's cookie. It's so great. Oh, thank you so much. A a book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For more podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. Also, for all the previous episodes of this show, go to BoingBoing.net, YouAreNotSoSmart.com, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all those places will get you more episodes of the show going back for years. If you would like to know more about any of the guests, any things we talked about, YouAreNotSoSmart.com. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music, this right here, this is Banjo-pocalypse. Some of the other music in the show was Drew Garraway. Head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart to support the show to get shows with no advertising whatsoever. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart.